Romans chapter 11. As you're turning there, let me explain a little bit about where we've been and where we're going. We've spent the last year, more or less a better part of a year, thinking about together, reading in, pondering, studying the book of Romans. We put a title over the top of the whole book. I think it summarizes more or less what's being communicated. We called it Rags to Righteous, a little bit of a play on words. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, a rags to riches story, the idea of someone who's coming from nothing and ends up with everything. Well, that is ultimately for all who are trusting in Christ, all of our stories. We all must recognize and admit that we've come from nothing. We have nothing to offer God. Our own merit's not going to get us there. But somehow in this great exchange, an exchange given to us by faith, we receive what Jesus has earned on our behalf, and we have our sins placed upon him, the wrath of God absorbed in his sacrifice on the cross. And it's that exchange that we've been really glorying in through the entirety of this book so far. We've now come to the end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, which is one more hinge point, another turning of the door in the argument that's being made here. And we have recently, most recently, tried to contemplate the big picture of what is happening with the people of God. So what does it mean that all of, or most of, the people that are nearest and dearest to Paul have rejected Jesus? That's been the question that has been at the forefront of Paul's mind. And it turns out that his hope for Israel is the same hope that it's been for all of us, that God might have mercy on all. That's how he's summarizing coming to the end of Romans 11. Mercy becomes what is the anchor of Paul's argument. And so as we turn now from the first 11 chapters of Romans into chapter 12, we're going to see it start to get a little bit more practical. There will be more hands-on, here's how you live. Here's how you deal with money or enemies or evil or government or stuff. And it's this turning point that we want to pay attention to as we begin. So I want to start by, I'm going to read just the last verse of Romans chapter 11. So Romans 11 starting in, in verse starting, ending in verse 36, and then we're going to turn on to the 12th chapter. So Romans 11, just right at the end, first couple verses of Romans 12, and I'm going to pray for us. Romans 11, starting in verse 36. This is what Paul has to say. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, thank you for the gift it is to to be here. We thank you that you allowed us to awake today to mercy and breath and life and provision, things that we do not deserve. So I pray that our posture, even starting here at this particular moment, is one of gratitude. The things that we've missed open our eyes. I pray, God, that in this next number of moments together, as we've considered Scripture, that you'd give us your spirit in great portion. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd help us. We thank you that despite all of our varying circumstances and needs, this this crowd, this room, likely a a one-off, first time in history, this exact group, we thank you that you know us and you're ready to meet us and care for us. We thank you, Spirit of God, that you have a gentle word, a comfort, 
You, you can bring comfort to those who are mourning and hurting and grieving that you by no means would turn us away or forsake us. You love those who are contrite in spirit. God, bring comfort. Spirit of God, I pray for your fatherly correction as well. Thank you for being strong and for the areas of our lives that are stubborn. For those of us who have been and continue to feel jaded by the world, who have settled into a kind of cynicism, who have hardness of heart, please correct us. And I ask now as we consider these verses, Holy Spirit, would you teach, even as I'm teaching and attempting to understand this together with your people, would you teach at a deeper, more poignant, certainly a more profitable level? Make us like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. This end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 is a precious passage of Scripture for me. Now you might say, well, tell us something that we don't know. It's the Bible, so you're supposed to say that, right? And, uh, I don't know if any of you had a precious moments Bible back in the day, but that was a, that was a thing. Yeah, remember these? They're pink and the whole deal. So a precious Bible is an obvious thing, right? Every verse is precious. But in addition to, you know, the, the late normal preciousness of the Word of God, they have some sentimental value, especially to these verses. There's been at least three times where I can mark in my life different moments. The first was near the end of my teenage years. You know, what happens is for most people, by the time they get to be 18, everyone's lived more or less the same kind of life. Or at least I would say that most of us had direction marked out for us. In the Western world, we started off in a preschool or a kindergarten and we just kept on going. You don't meet a lot of first graders with an existential crisis. They're not sitting out staring at the ocean saying, you know, first grade was good. I just don't know. Is second grade the right move for me? I'm just not sure if I should take that step or not. My friends are doing it, but, you know, I don't want to just, you know, jump off a cliff and all that. You see, your life is more or less just kind of like, here's the path, and you just go down it. And then, all of a sudden, everything flips. And you get toward your junior year of high school or middle of teenage years, and people start to ask you questions expecting that you have answers. So, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What are you going to study? You got a school picked out? You've done some visits? You going to play some sports or no sports? What's happening with that girl? Is that going to be a serious thing or not a serious thing? You going to live here or are you going to move somewhere else? Are you going to make some money? What do you think about student loans? Are you sure you should take those out or not? All these questions begin to flood in. And about those last few years of high school, I remember particular moments where I felt completely conflicted, more or less confused. I needed clarity. In addition to all of those questions, you know, I was beginning to think, well, what would I do for a career? And for a while, I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. I thought doing eye surgeries in my own little office, it seemed to me the least gross of all of the doctor positions. Didn't, teeth are disgusting, and I wasn't good with blood, and so I'm thinking, like, maybe that's the path, and how do I get there? But then at the same time, especially in those last few years, I began a stirring in my heart. I started to, to think of myself in, in weird ways, thinking, like, man, what if, what if I want a pastor? What would that even mean? And, and that's kind of an odd thing to tell your buddies. You know, you're in the middle of basketball practice with all your friends. It's not a normal conversation that comes up. Like, hey, your crossover's awesome thinking about ministering the Word of God to His people forever. Yeah, I mean, you don't just say that, right? That's an odd thing, so I didn't know where to go with that or what was going to happen with it. 
And I remember distinctly one particular moment. We're driving in the, back from the lake, which is a, a big deal. We're driving back from the lake, and it was about time for me to make decisions or beyond it. My brother's driving, and I'm riding with him. We're riding, it, riding in his early 90s Toyota Supra. And he'd worked hard over the course of summers, and this was a pretty cool car back in the day. So we're, we're zooming along, and he's wearing his sunglasses and probably playing corn or some kind of crazy music. He, he thought he was very cool. He was in some ways, but he thought he was very cool. And I remember at one point, he just stopped everything, and he looks through the river mirror, and he says to me, what are you going to do? No, really. I know everyone asks you that, but you've got to figure it out. What are you going to do? And I remember just getting little brother to death in the back seat. You know, just, you just feel small. I'm going to put my hands over and just kind of like screaming. And I went home that night and I began to think, I need some clarity. I need some things that are certain. What are my anchors in life? Like what's going on? And as I turned through scripture, I find the end of Romans chapter 11. And I thought to myself, here are some things that I could build my life on. Because Paul says, you know what? No matter what is swirling or what decisions you make, there's a direction of all things. From him and through him and to him are all things. God's glory is a, is a direction and an anchor, and I want to live in this. And then I began to read the beginning of Romans chapter 12, and I saw that if I presented myself as a sacrifice, if I opened my, my arms and my mind and my heart to God and legitimately said, this is a scary thing to say, if I really said, God, do with my life whatever you want, that if I did that, then on the other side of that, there was a promise. That by the end of verse 2, you might be able to discern what the will of God is. And so I remember there in that particular moment saying, you know what, I'm going to pray this and think about this and ask that God does this in my life. And for the next number of months into a couple of years, it became a sort of mantra for me. And if I felt a little confused, I didn't know what to do, I'd go back and I would just settle myself and I'd say, God, no matter what, I know everything's toward your glory, so help me to see that, help me to not get so worried here, I want to be in this direction. And then I'd pray for a renewing of my mind. God, renew my mind, I want to see clearly and ultimately, I want to do what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this was a, a sentimental passage for me. Coming to, to teach this is sentimental. Fast forward a few years. 2004, I was married and working in a master's degree and working in my local church nearly full-time-ish. I was doing children's ministry. I was the guy that was helping to put on the VBSs for a couple hundred kids and wearing the straw hat and playing the, this Little Light of Mine songs. But I'm, I'm thinking about seminary. And I got an opportunity one evening. I was invited by a good friend. It was actually two guys who had started a worship ministry, a guy named Bruce and another one, Zach Simons. And they invited me to teach because they said, we got a gathering. It's really small. It's just people here. And we've been watching these videos. And we just thought, what if, what if we studied the Bible together? And then they did the thing that is often kind of a curse for someone to teach. They said, just teach whatever you want, which that sounds like a, a blessing. Usually it's not. I thought to myself, oh my goodness, i got to come up with anything. What's it going to be? And what I came up with in that particular moment was I went straight back to those last years of high school. And so I stood up in that first evening of this gathering in a, in a ministry that I came to give much of my life to as it, as it grew over the next number of years. That first night, I preached Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, beginning at the end of 11. And then you go forward another nine years or so. Not only married and post-missionary stuff like in 2004, but now with three little kids and a seminary degree under my belt, and our family on August 4th, 2013, stands up for the first time in a new place, in a new town, in a new city, in a new county called Four Oaks Community Church. And same sort of curse given to me that morning, I'll preach whatever you want, just from your heart. 
that's a big Bible. I mean, what am I supposed to say? And then I realized, well, I think I know what I want to say. And I turned to the end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 and taught these verses. Because I think so much of life, so much of the way that we live and the way we posture ourselves and position ourselves is found here in this turning of the page. In some way, you could say that Romans 1 through 11 is a lot of theology. I don't want to make too much of a divide between theology and practice, because if you do that, you're getting, you're getting dangerous. Theology informs our life. The way we think and what our hearts attach to and what we believe eventually comes out in the way we live. That's just how we were made. But if you wanted to make a division, you could say that the first 11 chapters of Romans, much like many of his letters, are full of propositions and statements and truth. And then he turns. There's usually a turning point where he turns and he says essentially this question, so now what? So now what? Is God the creator of all things? Is his glory peeking out through all creation? Is he a standard by which we're going to be held accountable? Are we human beings who have a moral compass and have consciences that sometimes condemn us and sometimes excuse us or sometimes are full of guilt and shame? Do we lack righteousness? Do we need a savior? Has Jesus come in the flesh to live a life we couldn't live? Did he absorb the wrath of God fully on the cross for us? Did Jesus resurrect from the dead to give us new hope so that by faith we might be able to receive what we shouldn't have received? Because the answer is yes to all these big thoughts, these big questions, the question becomes, much. I think Paul's putting to us much like you would a, a senior in high school, oh, so now what? What are you going to do? And that's the turning point that we're at. I've titled this section, or more or less this sermon, Reasoned, or I think you could, put, you could substitute rational. I like rational sometimes because it fits a little math kind of picture for me. Let's say rational radicals, or reasoned radicals. That's what Christians are. That's what he's trying to say. He says that if we're the kind of people who are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, if we're to give over all of our lives and point ourselves in a direction to say, God, whatever else comes, use me for your glory. If we're going to be those kind of people, the kind of people who refuse to be conformed to the world, the kind of people who want a renewing of mind, we're going to be a little different. It's, that seems radical. Why would you? You're going to give yourself totally that, to that thing? I mean, I'm a little bit religious, but not like that. And if you're going to live in that way, you're going to seem like you're a little bit radical. Now, I know there's a book written later by Platt or something in this, and I just want to say I reserve the right to define radical in my own way. I disavow. Not that I disavow the book. I think there's some fine parts. But I don't even mean radical in the sense of you've you got to be a monk or totally crazy. But in some sense, you will be different from the world. And what Paul's going to try to argue is essentially this, that any person who has come through the first 11 chapters of Romans and determine these things to be true, then there is only one response. There is a logical response of surrender. So in order to get at this, I'm going to show you how he makes this argument for reasoned radicals. And I'm going to give you these ideas. He's going to give us a proposition first, a statement of fact, a truth to be considered and pondered. Then he's going to persuade us. So first there's a proposition, then there's persuasion. And finally, there's a path that he begins to see, a path to get us along the way. First, the proposition. I told you that he starts with a statement. The end of Romans 11 is for Paul, I believe, an anchoring, a centering statement. He says, for from him 
And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is reminding us that of all of the things that he just spoke about, everything from the beginning of creation all the way up to the mystery of the people of God, what's going to happen with Israel? That this could be summarized by no matter what we see or don't see, that God is working all things out for his glory. This is the testimony of the Bible, that ultimately every single one of your T-ball accomplishments, every bit of school you've ever attained, every relationship, every single love, every desire, every failure, every bit of creation, the, the waves and the fish under the the ocean that we can't even see, all of the crawling bugs, all of it eventually pointed in one massive arrow to the glory of God to display his value. That's the statement that Paul makes at the end of Romans chapter 11. That means that we are not our own. That means that there's a purpose undergirding our lives that all of us need to come to grips with. To him be glory forever. There's one little phrase in that statement too, this proposition that makes us stop, I think, and think about the massiveness of it. He says, how many things are from him and how many things are through him and how many things are to him? Well, he says, all things. You ever thought about how many things there are? It's become a little bit in vogue, at least maybe like of the, I don't know, I imagine like an early mom post on Instagram, 30s something. You know this little phrase, all the things? Have you heard this? I got a friend who says that. Hey, what's going on? Oh, just all the things. Have you heard this before? It's a statement. I think that's what Paul's getting at. How many of the things he just says, oh, just all the things? How many things should be given over to God because of his glory? All the things. It was funny looking back. I had a lot of joy looking back to 2013 in preparation and thinking about this passage for when I first came and remembering how struck I was by one massive set of things in Leon County. You know what it was? the trees, a psychotic number of trees in this county. In fact, I was a little bit, a little bit annoyed because I love Google Maps. I, I love spying on the earth from above. Like if I could have my own satellite, I would do it. I, would, I love to go to Google Earth or Maps or something. If I'm going to go on a trip, I make sure and I'm looked, I've looked through almost every little place in a Google Map ahead of time. Because I love this. I love looking at the world from this vantage point. I want to see. I feel like it gives me information. Before I go on vacation, I have the vacation voyeurism moment, and I feel like I'm more prepped when I go in later. And so you can imagine how disappointed I was when trying to see Tallahassee and what life could look like. Like, oh, honey, look at this over here. There's a, a green blotch of trees. Look at these roads, though. What if we got this house right here? Green, 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 green. Everything is green. I don't know if the NSA is being thwarted by Tallahassee so that the satellites can't see what we're doing. I don't know what's happening, if this is some kind of th conspiracy theory. The point is, is that all the trees are here. And now that you live here, if you do something like yard work, you think about just how many varieties of weeds can there be? And then you pull a weed and you see all these varieties of different bugs and every little speck of dirt, and every root system that makes you very angry trying to do anything in a yard. And then you build upon that. That's just one little set of things, all the things in vegetation. You build upon that every other human emotion and relationship all the way through to the end. And it is an anchoring thought, a summarizing statement to say, 
And somehow and in some way, God has ordained that all of these things will ultimately line up to shine a ray of value and worth on him. And so if you ask yourself the question, what am I for and what am I doing and so now what? To be wrapped up in this great cosmic plan of the glory of God is the ultimate destination for every single thing. That's his proposition. His proposition is all things are from God. They're being sustained and they're through him right now. And eventually they're going to head to him. So, he's going to say, so how should you live? So what? So now what? That's the question. You finish the first 11 chapters of theology and now he says, I'm going to persuade you to something. I want to persuade you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. I want to persuade yourself, I want to persuade you to give yourself away. I want to persuade you to find your greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in a surrendered life. I want you to begin to see, not by happenstance, but by intentionality, that when you wake up in the morning, this breath, it's God's. These gifts around me, this provision coming from God and upheld by God and ultimately given back to Him for glory. I want you to see that every single desire, romantic or otherwise, for relationship, ultimately from God through Him and must be given back to His glory. This is what he wants to persuade us of. And I love the word persuade because that's what he's doing. Paul's not ashamed. I want you to notice here, he says, I appeal to you. This is a, it's like a request. Well, why does he do that? Why is he just trying to persuade? Couldn't Paul have commanded? He was an apostle. I don't know if you knew that. If it was me, I probably would have got a big name tag. Apostle. It would just set on it so everyone knew. Better than that, maybe like a really cool pointy hat. Just like the power hat. If, if Paul wanted to, he could have commanded anybody. He could have said, I don't know if you knew this, but I was commissioned personally by the risen Jesus to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles, so I'm going to tell you what to do now. He's not shy about commanding. Other times he says, I command you by the grace of God to do something. He's not shy about it. Why persuade here? Why say, I appeal? And I think there's a good reason that he does this. He persuades Because to command in light of the glory of God, in light of the mercies of God, to command would be too small. To command would be to cheapen the reality and the compelling power of the mercy of God. He believes he's already made the best argument. You see what he's saying? He he already believes he's made the best argument. He says, I'm going to appeal to you by the mercies of God. And what he believes is, is that the mercy of God, if rightly understood is the most compelling force in all of the universe. You ever had a conversation with someone? They're not convinced. And they say, "Ah, just try me again. And you give like four or five of your best arguments ever, and at the end of it, you could just see, I'm not getting through. Eventually, they're just like, but why? Maybe like a four-year-old, but why? There's an endless why, they just don't get it. The idea here is, I think that Paul is saying, is I've exhausted all the arguments, and at this point... You either get it or you don't. At this point, the mercy of God is either mercy or it isn't. And if it's mercy to you, then this is going to be a no-brainer. So the command, I think, wouldn't make any sense. On the short term, you can command and cajole someone to do what they don't believe in. And in some ways, begrudging obedience is, is in some ways better than no obedience, right? Anyone who's ever had a child says amen. Begrudging obedience 
can still be, on, on the whole, especially if it's done in the, in, the, in the light of correction or in the light of the right direction, begrudging obedience, especially as it teaches us, can still be a good thing. It's better than no obedience. But you know what's really transformative? Not having to command someone. When obedience seems like the greatest joy. Imagine a scenario of you and your son, and you observe the child uh, fighting over toys and commandeering for himself an entire army of trucks. He's got all of them. Some of them are just on watch, hasn't touched them in 20 minutes. And now a little girl comes in around the corner, and she desires to play, and she's lonely. She comes over, she grabs one, and your son goes and informs her and says, I'm sorry, this is all for me. I don't know if you noticed, but that is a very important watch truck in my system, right? Imagine this kid. And so you see this go, and you try to tell them to share, and they just don't. They won't do it over and over again. So you go and you hug them tightly so that they know you love them, but you're also squeezing them, you know, like that kind of hug, the, the, the authoritative hug of the child. And you tell them, here's what you're going to do for the next 20 minutes. You're going to give Sally your truck. Now, the kid, I think it's better that they have begrudging obedience, and they go and they say, here, Sally, it's the worst truck anyway, or whatever, you know? <laughs> they do that. Now, if you did that every, every day, you, can, you could maybe control and command and create a little bit of a culture of obedience. But you know what would be transformative? Is that the next day you come in and you walk up and your child runs up to you and says, Dad, 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 let me tell you something I've been thinking about. I'm over here with all these trucks. I see this other little girl. She seems lonely. I know she probably wants to play with the trucks, but she's got no toys. And really, at the end of the day, these aren't even my toys. I was given them by the, by the daycare person. So why in the world would I keep them all for myself? Shouldn't I obviously just give them there? Then you know what the dad says? At that, point, at that moment, how, how stupid would it be for the dad to be, son, I command you to share with that girl. You don't have to. Something's already happened in the child that's so much more compelling, so much more powerful, that it's a duh, obviously, kind of moment. To command would be to cheapen the revelation that's taken place in the heart of the child. Instead, you could just encourage. You could maybe appeal. And the thing would happen. And I believe that's what Paul's saying. Paul has been, for 11 chapters, un, he has been unrelenting in trying to convince people that there is a God, that he has standards, that we've fallen short of this standard and fallen short of his glory, but in his kindness, that he came in the flesh and lived a life we should have lived, and he absorbed the wrath of God, and now his resurrection can be ours if we would have faith in him. And it's that mercy that he believes that is so powerful and so compelling that if you don't see it by now... Him commanding won't make any difference. It's as though you were talking with him. He said, uh, here's the thing. It seems like some people want me to offer myself as a living sacrifice and totally go all in on this Jesus thing. Tell me why. And Paul just points back. He says, oh, oh well, here's the conclusion. You should offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And if you want to know why, then he just gestures wildly at chapters 1 through 11. So you're still asking why? Uh, well, go back there. Did you see what we talked about? Because here's the thing. In some sense, the experience and the appropriation of good news is only good news if you see it as good news. Isn't that interesting as a qualifier for good news? Now, in, of course, the cosmic true sense, in the, the, the soil that we actually live on, in the real reality, good news it is really good news. But a lot of people don't act that way. For them, they just think, well, it's news. 
And maybe you've been there. You ever had a friend say to you something like this? Hey, you want to hear something really funny? You know, my honest thought is a lot of times, well, don't, don't go too fast here, buddy. I'm the judge of that, right? Like, you ever think that? Something could happen between what you think is really funny and me that might change the equation some, right? The same thing with good news. Hey, you want to hear good news? Uh, is it good news? And if it is received as good news, if someone's eyes have been opened, if their heart has been changed, if they realize that in their desperation they got nothing to offer, but they have the hope of Christ by faith, if that transaction has happened in someone's mind and their heart, you don't have to command. This becomes the most obvious no-brainer in the world. God has given me everything. He is sustaining everything. All things will be His anyway, so what should I do today? Offer myself to Him. What other conclusion could you make? And that is why it says here that to offer yourself as a living sacrifice is your spiritual worship. I like the good old-fashioned KJV here. It said it is your reasonable worship. There's a sense here in which it, it is a, a rational thought. That's the idea of spiritual worship. That thought is this idea of your fitting worship. It's fitting that you respond in full surrender. No matter how many times the world around us would say that it's insane, no matter how many temptations it is for you to hold back, or for you to say, I kind of want to hedge my bets here. I don't want to get too strange or too religious or too odd. No matter how many times you have a temptation to do that, Paul is saying, no, listen, if, we, if you could just see for a moment the reality, the deep reality of all things, if you could see who God is and what he's given us in Jesus, you would not hesitate. Didn't Jesus tell this in parables? Didn't he say, imagine you're a pearl merchant or something? Well, he tells the story of a pearl merchant. I've always had a hard time imagining myself as a pearl merchant, uh, personally. But imagine you were, and you find one pearl of great price. What do you do? You sell everything. You abandon it, and you go, I'm just going to get this. I have to get this. What if you're walking in a field, and you find a treasure, and it's hidden in a field, and a man rushes off, and he's in the midst of selling everything? Let's say that you meet the man who's just rushed from the field, and he's selling everything. You come up, and he's like, I got a quarter horse here, uh, 10 bucks. Anybody? $10. Just give me $10 for this kind of thing. I just need $10 more. It's all I need. You'd say, this person's crazy. This person's radical. What are they giving everything away for? Because to him, it's obvious. An exchange has taken place. He's seen the value of something. And so for him to upend entirety of life and give everything for this one purpose is a duh, no-brainer kind of moment. Surrender. Living sacrifice a willingness to not be conformed, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, these are the most obvious steps for someone who has encountered and received the mercies of God. To be convinced to live life as a Christian, once one has been made new as a Christian in Christ by the Spirit, makes no sense. Yeah, okay, I mean, imagine negotiating this and bartering this out. Okay, here's the deal. I'm willing to give all of my sin and my shame and my guilt. I'll put that all on Jesus. He can take that. Thank you for the forgiveness. That's good. Yes, and I know in the future I'm going to need all of his righteousness. So why don't you clothe me perfectly so that none of my merit will get burned away and sent from God's presence forever? I'd like that. But now for the rest of my life here, I'd like to negotiate a few things. 
No, the person who knows they need mercy has no leveraging power. They got no leverage. They're not, they're not negotiating. So Paul says, I'm going to appeal to you by the mercies of God. So much more powerful than a command. And when you've seen it, you change. So his proposition is that ultimately everything is going to God's glory, that he is the purpose and the reason and the final statement of everything, and that those of us who have received mercy and had our eyes opened, we don't need to be convinced that good news is good news because it just is. And then finally he begins to show us a path. Well, what is this going to look like? You still got to wake up tomorrow. You still got to figure out how do I do this? There's still going to be temptations along the way. And I begin, I believe that he gives us a big principle for a path to follow. And then the next number of chapters are going to be working this out. What ends up happening on this path is that we begin to bring everything into alignment as best as we possibly can. We run it through the filter of the glory of God. You ever been somewhere where the water's just terrible? You can't drink it out of the faucet? It's like, give me Brita or give me death. You know what I mean? You know what a Brita filter is? Like, you need a filter. You got to filter this thing or you're, you're afraid. It's dangerous. I think what ends up happening is you're going to say this, no, no aspect of my life is going to escape the filter of the mercy of God given to me in Christ and ultimately for the glory of God. Not a single thing. That's dangerous. I'm not going to drink death water. Give me the filter. And this becomes the filter of all of life. And it's all of life, not a bit of life. Not Sunday mornings of life. I heard a pastor say one time, I won't name him, but he's, uh, he's slightly older than me and he's written a good bit. By slightly, I mean ancient. He said this, you know, mine was the Jesus is my co-pilot generation. Now, this is my commentary. That phrase, maybe you've heard it, my, Jesus is my co-pilot generation. I can imagine a bumper sticker or something. Now, at some level, I think, all right, so if Jesus was never in the picture, it's good he's in the picture. And more than that, you've invited him to the, co- to the cockpit. That's, that's a good start. But this pastor once said, you know, mine was a Jesus is my co-pilot generation, but I'm so glad now to know him as the whole plane, the sky, the journey, and the destination. The reality here is that our living sacrifice kind of life, our reasonable worship, our no duh, I'm going to offer everything, means now that instead of being conformed to the world, and instead of letting our, our minds be stale by whatever happens to come in, we filter it through. And we realize that God now has a stake in and a claim for everything. He's not merely helping us live our life. He is our life. And so when I began to pray at the end of high school, God helped me to do this. I began to be convinced perhaps of a different kind of picture. My picture was more of a, a backpack, and I'm sure someone taught me one of this at a youth camp or something. You know how original thoughts are, right? They don't exist. So I don't know how that would have worked, but I began to think of, and I saw myself more of, as having God as sort of a totem. There were parts of my life where I knew that I would want God when I got there. And so I said to myself, man, I'm going nowhere without God. So I was living my life, and I put him in my backpack. And then when I got into a place where I felt like it was appropriate and nothing was going to get harmed or, or messed up, I would unzip and I would take him out and I'd set him there and I would say, okay, God, have your way or bless. And the same kind of imagery here, this pastor for the co-pilot kind of thing, I became convinced at one point 
that this kind of thinking, though it's better than not having God with you anywhere, was really completely and totally backward. And I began to pray and think about conformity in a whole different way. And I thought to myself instead, no, God put me in the backpack and zip me up and don't listen to my murmuring and my complaining, my backseat driving, my backpack driving, you know what I'm saying? Don't let me murmur through the zippers. You're doing it wrong. A little scary on the turn there. I didn't want God as a totem any longer. I wanted him to be the direction of my life. I didn't want any aspect of what I did to be outside of his control and his care. And so this prayer became a normal routine for me. I think that on its face, this principle, this path that Paul's putting before us is to make sure that we're recognizing a few things. He says in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. I think that that indicates for us as an underlying principle that it's possible to be conformed to the world. I don't think this means we should be afraid of the world. There is still good in the world. I believe in common grace. God's image is stamped everywhere, but it does mean this. We will not be thoughtless in conformity to the world. There may be times that will be derided. Jesus said, we must remember this, Jesus said, they persecuted me, and everyone who follows after me, they will also persecute. And I didn't want to live the kind of life that was sort of like this. Jesus, you know that whole part where you're lifted up into heaven in glory and everyone worships you forever? I want in on that part of your life. And what I didn't want was the taking up my cross and dying daily and the willing to be derided part of Jesus' life. But the reality is, Jesus says, if you don't follow me in this, if you don't realize that sometimes you have to stand in opposition to the world, you can't just march with the masses anytime thoughtlessly, if you're not willing to be weird, then you have no part in me. You see, that's the thing about the negotiation game is that it just doesn't, doesn't work. It can't be played. This is an all-in kind of game. You're either, all, you're either all committed to God's glory and living the way that he desires for you, or you're on the path to destruction. That's the way that this works. So the first principle, this idea is, is that it's possible to thoughtlessly be conformed to the world. Sometimes you may need to be at odds. It's funny the, the flip that could take place here. I think sometimes we do offer areas of our life and we say, I'm not going to be conformed. For instance, you didn't sleep in or go to brunch this morning. Like, that's a nonconformity. And believe me, that sounds delicious. It's a nonconformity. But what you'll start to see is, is that the more that you offer into Jesus, the more that you give to him, the more the Spirit of God transforms you to become like him and love what he loves and despise what he despises. And you begin to see that slowly over the course of time, all that is offered to him is given back. All that is offered to him is purified. All that is offered to him is retained. There's a funny picture of, of Peter and this idea of, of what can be cleansed, what can be given over. You guys remember the story in John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and Peter comes in? I always just see the door. He's, he enters like Kramer. That's how I view Peter. So he just, his door flies open and he just jumps in and he sees people being feet washed and he's just like, not me. He's ultra spiritual. And then Jesus says to him, now here's the thing, Peter. If, you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And so what does he do? He, he flips and he just says, okay, how about my head, my hands, my legs, 
Is this going to get weird? I'll just, whatever part you need to wash. Everything. And that's what happens when you say, no matter what's happening in life or the world around me, everything is going to be filtered this direction. And it means not only the things we do, I think that's what conformity has in mind, the things that we do or are willing to not do, but also, he says, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What, is to, what does it mean to be renewed in your mind? It means that you ask the question of God's honor and His glory as you consume what the world offers. It means that your reading habits, your thinking habits, your meditating habits, your complaining, your bitterness, your lack of forgiveness, all of these things, the kind of inner life of a person is now going to be offered up and reoriented by what God says. Being transformed by the renewal of your mind means that you desire a washing and a cleansing from the Word of God consistently. And then the promise, here's the promise, this is a big promise, that in your willingness to do this, to be a living sacrifice, a reasonable sacrifice, and in your willingness to be not conformed just thoughtlessly to the world, and in being transformed in your mind, that over the course of time you'll grow in wisdom and discernment to know what God's will is. One of the greatest gifts that Paul gives us now is that over the next number of chapters he's going to put this into practice. He's going to show us. He's going to say, here's what this might look like in these different areas of life. So I would invite you to pay careful attention. Romans 12 is one of the best chapters in all of the Bible. Stop me if you've heard me say that before. Like it, I think in Romans it competes with Romans 8. There's like 1A and 1B. Because it applies it to all areas of life. We're going to now see over the next number of chapters in Romans, what does that mean for us to discern what the will of God is? What's the will of God as we deal with authority and governing powers above us? What does it mean when we disagree with people? What does it mean to discern His will with our stuff? What does it mean when someone is wrong? What does it mean when someone is right? All of these areas of life are going to be offered up in pursuit of seeing God's glory manifest in us the most possible. So, as we thought through these verses. I think rather than a command, far be it for me to command where Paul has appealed, rather than command and say, so therefore, church, X, Y, Z, I think what I would invite you to do is to think again on the mercies of God to you in Jesus Christ. And to ask and to see if it is true that what you've received in Him is not worth, in an automatic kind of way, reorienting all your life. My guess is that you're here this morning because you've made this commitment at some point. My guess is you're here because a lot of what I've been saying, and you read through the beginning of Romans 12, and you're saying to yourself, amen, I've seen that, yes, yes for sure. And if that's the case, I rejoice with you, and what I want to do is go back again to the basics. I want to go back again to the basics. I want to give God what is His, namely, everything. And so as we think on Jesus and ponder Him and sing on Him and come to His table this morning, let's renew the awe and wonder that we have in the mercy of God and then commit to let that mercy drive us to a different kind of life.